All right, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 is our text for this evening. And throughout our last sections of Philippians, we've been looking at Paul's reflection on the church's giving. Now, every church is to participate in giving. Giving is the the foundation of the first church. If we go back to Acts chapter 2, one of the first things that we see as a hallmark and as an emblematic picture of the church is their giving. And that giving was magnanimous. It was over and above. They were selling all that they had and giving to any whoever might have need. And so we understand that this is a a critical reflection and a critical element of what a biblical New Testament church is to do. And as we've discussed, Philippians is arguably the best New Testament church. So when we think about that, we think of what makes a church so. What makes it something that stands out in all of recorded scripture as that most important church in the way that they function, the most successful and the most accomplished. And it's interesting that through all of the things that we've seen in the church, that Paul brings this hallmark of giving as the last element. I find that, I find that striking, because we've seen some amazing things in this book. We've seen some tremendous prayer, we've seen massive theological details, bigger than really many places in Scripture, despite the brevity And all of these proclamations of Paul's desire, his faithfulness, the the elements of a Christian life, and how the Philippians are filling it out. And now he brings it down to this element of their giving. In verses 10 to 14, which we've looked at over the past few weeks, we we saw Paul's personal consideration of the Philippians' giving. And when I say personal consideration... I mean, Paul's personal consideration. You look at verses 10 to 14, and you look at all of the first-person singular pronouns, all the I's, but I rejoice in verse 10, 11. Not that I speak for want, verse 11. For I have learned, whatever circumstances, I am humble, verse 12. I know how to get along, verse 12. And I also know how to live in prosperity, verse 13. I can do all things. It's I, I, I. This is Paul's personal reflection about the giving of the Philippians. And it's a critical reflection, and hence we spend a little extra time on that. Well, now at the end of chapter 4, we see Paul's discussion on the gift itself. And some tremendous information for us as a New Testament church that strives to be in many ways like the Philippians, strives to be uh, a prominent and powerful and God-honoring church. So, some great details for us. I've, I've titled our message for tonight, The Components of Giving. The Components of Giving, here in verses 15 to 13. Let's read our text and then we'll make some components about, or some discussion about the components of giving. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. 
For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Paphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so we come to this understanding of the components of giving. And our first point begins in verse 15, and I've titled it Gratitude for Giving. Gratitude for Giving. Now, we understand this idea of gratitude for giving. And for those of us that have had the, the privilege uh, of children, and even those of us who have not, we all understand that when we receive a gift, the proper thing to do is to respond and to reply in gratitude to that gift which has been given. And the idea of writing thank you notes, something that is becoming less popular in our day and age, but is very critical for us to be a part of, and important that we continue to pass along, because it reflects that which has given. But really, it's not the gift itself, is it? It's the, it's the element, it's the heart attitude behind it. You know, when, when a, a child graduates from high school and they receive uh, different gifts and some of them are things they're thinking, well, how am I ever or when am I ever going to use this? It, it has nothing to do with the gift for which they write the thank you, but it is because someone has taken the time to think of them. And so we all understand this idea of gratitude for giving. Well, Paul doesn't directly come out here in verse 15, and say thank you, for he has previously done so back in verse 10. And if you just flash back to verse 10 for a second with me, he says, but I rejoice greatly in the Lord that now at last you have revived your concern for me. So back in verse 10, there he made the formal proclamation of thanks. So in some way this is a restatement, but it goes deeper than that. It takes us beyond the simple thank you, and that was not simple, by the way, that he rejoices, and he rejoices not just a little, but greatly, and that great rejoicing is in the Lord because he realizes it's the Lord that has stirred their heart and has had them give this wonderful gift. So now, after making that formal expression of thanks, his gratitude is shown in the importance of the gift. In verse 15, he comes forward and, and he talks about how important it is. And not only in verse 15, but also in verse 16, Paul expresses the repeat nature of their giving. So not only is he talking about the importance of it, but in verse 16 he says that you have given a gift more than once. 
Now, we've gone over this, and we've talked about the repeated gifts and the way that they're shown in 1 Thessalonians, in 2 Corinthians. And Paul's continual just encouragement and even exhortation to the other churches about their giving, using the Philippians as an example. So, this more than one's gift shows this repeated nature, and this was a very big deal. Because these were not times of affluence. These were not times of abundance. These were times, remember, when the majority of people in the ancient world were living day to day for food. This is why there's the admonition by the Lord that day workers are to be paid that day for their wages. Because after they finished in the field, they needed to receive their wages so that they could go to the market and purchase food to take home for the family for the day. So this was a a hand-to-mouth existence in many of these families. So when we see that they're giving repeated gifts, this is incredibly generous. This This is showing just a hard attitude that is staggering. And we see this fact supported in verse 15, because it says the Philippians alone gave to Paul's ministry. The Philippians alone gave. None of the other churches participated in Paul's ministry by giving through this time. He says, as he talks about that in verse 15, that after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me. What churches were in Macedonia? Can you think of any? There are two. One of them has two books written about it in the New Testament. It starts with TH. The Thessalonians, that's right, for the gold star. The Thessalonians were one of the churches that Paul ministered to in Macedonia. And what do we know about the Thessalonian church? They're a rocking good church, aren't they? Paul is giving them accolade after accolade. He's encouraging them. He's telling them to excel still more twice through 1 Thessalonians. The issue that they've got, of course, is that they're struggling with the idea of work, and so they get a little bit of rebuke in the first book, and by the end of the second book, he kind of thumps them on the head hard. But this good church did not participate. The other church we see in Acts chapter 17, right after Paul leaves Philippi, and that is those good-hearted, scholarly Bereans. Ah, yes, the Bereans, who your pastor often encourages you to be the good Bereans. And we all ought to be, because what did they do? They didn't just reject Paul's word, nor did they just take it at face value, but they searched the scriptures to know if it was so. But they didn't participate in the giving. Good, biblically grounded men and women, but they did not participate in the giving. So here, the Philippians alone are the ones who have given to Paul's ministry. Verse 10 further supports these different elements of giving and how he understood that because the Philippians had now given, it wasn't because they didn't want to before, but they couldn't. And so we, again, talked about that in verses 10 and 11. You can go back and listen to those messages. Paul's gratitude is more furtherly recognized in a very emphatic way at the beginning of verse 15. Three different phrases 
that all say the same thing. You yourselves also know Philippians. You yourselves, Philippians, all referring to the same thing. You know. You yourselves know. Because you have understood how important this was. You recognize in your own hearts how important this was, this gift. And Paul is very emphatic about his gratitude as he brings this strong statement of who they are. And this was a critical time for this gift because, as it says, it's at the beginning of his preaching. It's at the start of his ministry. He's out there, and until he gets a chance to get himself rooted and to get a little support, he's kind of out there on his own. And he's already, this is now his second missionary journey, so the, the little money that he has had, he has now expended again to get to the other side of the modern world. You know, we think uh, of jumping on an airplane and, you know, I can throw the kids on an airplane and have them in California in a few hours for a couple hundred bucks. Okay, you're taking a boat for a month to various ports, sometimes several boats, because one might not be going where you're going, and you're purchasing your passage on each of those boats. And we know what Paul was. He was a tent maker, and so he could make some money, but you didn't just crank out a tent. Right? This wasn't an all of a sudden, okay, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to sit down and knock out a tent for you. This was a long process to sew a tent. And he is traveling, so he doesn't have all these supplies. So he is desperately in need of this gift. And this is the beginning of his preaching. The ministry will rise or fall on this gift. It is so important because it is here at the beginning of his ministry. The ministry of the gospel, or at the beginning of the gospel, as some translations have it. This was Paul's first preaching in Philippi, Philippi, as recorded in Acts 16. So, so important that he was able to receive this gift. And notice something else about verse 15. And we read it, and it kind of moves past us, but it says, No church shares with me in the matter of giving and receiving. Three of those terms are financial terms. Now, we're talking about gratitude for giving. We're talking about the gift, and all of a sudden, Paul brings in these three accounting terms. Matter, the word for matter is an accounting term, and the word for giving, and the word for receiving. But what really ought to strike us is we're talking about giving here, aren't we? We're talking about giving, but Paul notes both giving and receiving. Because what he's making note of is that there is a a flow, there is an ebb and flow of God's resources through the churches. So although they are giving, they are also to be receiving. Because there are times of need and there are times of abundance. And all of the resources are the Lord's, are they not? So we'll see much more of this as we roll along. But the point is that Paul is bringing up these accounting terms, not only to show that this is the Lord's money and that it's moving, but to show the care in which he takes with this gift. He is showing that he is financially accountable for all that goes on. Keep in mind, they gave money to Paul, but what did Paul do sometimes? He took money and he took it back to Jerusalem, didn't he? 
Well, he's keeping a careful accounting, the matters of giving and receiving. It's not like, you know, okay, you've given this money for Jerusalem. I'm kind of tight. I'm just going to pull out a few denarii to get myself through to get there. No, no. Paul's accounting is meticulous about this. And that's so critical to recognize the importance of all that's brought forward as we begin in this expression of the gratitude for giving. And this is Paul's gratitude for the gift. And the second component of giving is in verse 17, and it is the benefit of the gift. The benefit of the gift. And it says in verse 17, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Paul isn't focused on the benefit of the gift from a monetary point of view. It isn't the benefit to him that is the focus, but it is the benefit to the account of the giver. It is for the the benefit of the Philippians, literally for the profit which increases to your account. That's how we would translate this literal portion of the Greek text, and, and it is almost identical in the New American Standard. The profit which increases to your account. Initially, this phrase sounds like financial profit. But how can that be? Our context is the giving of financial giving. Humanly speaking, giving dollars away won't result in financial benefit. Right? We're to be giving, and there is definitely a receipt for it, but it's not financial. That which they are to receive from all of this is a spiritual benefit. So this increase of profit is spiritual. You know, I, I have had the privilege of being associated with some folks from time to time uh, in, in my ministry and my time knowing the Lord who were very well-to-do and who gave abundantly, gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to ministries around the world. And, and I would ask them about, you know, were you ever concerned because you're giving such large amounts and because I had had a hand in encouraging them regarding some particular ministries that they had given to. And they said, you know what, we have found out, and, and I believe this is a statement that is true, no matter what we give, you can't outgive God. And that is the truth. You can't outgive God. We know that all the resources we give come from Him, but He continues to provide. And so this idea of profit is spiritual profit that's coming. And this is exactly what we see the Lord say back in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 20. The Lord says in Matthew 6:20, "Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy." For where thieves do not break in nor steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So as we give, the giving that we do, and when he says store up in heaven, it's not like somehow the check is going to heaven. We all get that. What's happening is that our heart's desire to give is evidenced to God. And he is the one who is making note of this. We see the, the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. 
I hope, with my squiggly writing. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. You can't outgive God. And God will return to us over and above all that we could ever expect. So also we see in uh, Proverbs eleven twenty four, 24, uh, Solomon writes back in Proverbs eleven twenty four: there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. There is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. So there is this understanding of God's taking note and, and that there is spiritual blessing that is received from the one who is generous in his giving. The Lord says the same thing in Luke six thirty eight: Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. How is that idea of the benefit of giving brought forward in such a powerful way in these texts? This is the benefit of the gift, and it is great in every respect. And it is a blessing to those. Now, we understand that this is also, these are the same verses that the health and wealth gospel uses and perverts to show that, you know, if you're not receiving enough, it's because you don't have enough faith, it's that you're not giving enough. That is the completely wrong-headed perspective because that's taking our verse and instead of receiving spiritually, they're saying, oh, you will receive materially. That's not what the verse is talking about. That's not what any of these verses are talking about. And this is the horrible abomination that the health and wealth gospel movement brings forward. Well, our third point then is the effect of the gift in verse 18. The effect of the gift. And in Philippians 4 and verse 18, we read, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The benefit of the Philippian spiritual is to the Philippian spiritual riches. But to Paul, the financial effect is overwhelming. He has everything in full. He has an abundance. And he wants them to know of the great blessing of this gift. The, this word abundance is used two times back in verse 12. Where there in verse 12 it is translated as prosperity and as having abundance. Paul's described both sides of how he lives. He knows how to live low. He knows how to live high. That is he knows how to live with nothing. He knows how to live in abundance. Well, this was the high side of that living. This was the abundant provision which they had provided for him. Think about it for just a minute. Where's Paul writing from? Philippians is written from a Roman jail. How abundant can your provision be in a Roman jail? Pretty incredibly so. Because it's, it's an understanding not only of this gift that's given, but he keeps reflecting on this spiritual nature. He keeps understanding the heart that comes behind the gift. And that is so vital for each of us to understand. 
And keep in mind that key component and his contentment in all of this. Even in prison, I have an abundance. He says that he is amply supplied, and that is a, a, a perfect verb. Uh, the verb is play raw, oh, it means to be complete or filled. And it is something that is a past tense action that has ongoing results. So he has been filled and he continues to be. How does that play out with his previous statement of being in need? Again, it's not just the physical provision, it's the spiritual provision. He is understood all the way back from verse 10, their desire, although an inability to give. And throughout the time, whether physically provided for or with abundance and, or, or with need, he is understood that he has been filled. And then he talks about the gift from Epaphroditus. He calls it a fragrant aroma. I love this phrase. In Exodus 29 and verse 18, we see the first depiction of this, and it is the same phrase that is used, soothing aroma. A soothing aroma. That is what the sacrifices to God are to be. They rise before him as a soothing aroma. Our sacrifice of praise, our offering of praise, as we come together tonight, as we come to be together as a family, to fellowship, to worship, as we come on Sunday to sing, or even as the choir and the orchestra practice, which I'm getting there, hang tight. Um, the, the reality is that these are offerings of praise that are to rise as a sweet aroma before the Lord. And that's what he's speaking about this gift as being as well. The, the same phrase is used in 2 Corinthians 2.14. And note clearly what is described as the sweet aroma in these verses. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. It is the sweet aroma of Christ that is being manifest. This is what happens when giving goes on. It is the aroma of Christ. We don't give from our own accord. We don't give from our own desire because we understand who we are in and of ourselves apart from Christ. We are selfish. I'm not going to give that. I could use that. It's not like all of us are, you know, J. Paul Getty running around with, you know, 12-figure bank accounts. We all understand what it means to pay bills and to try to get ends to meet. And so giving is something that is not simple. We could all find a place to put that. But the reality of the giving comes out in our understanding that it is Christ who gives through us. And this is the sweet aroma. We see the same language in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 where Paul says, And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us and offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Christ's very sacrifice is a fragrant aroma. So also is this giving and it all rises before the Lord and it's also an acceptable sacrifice God knows the giving that comes and he receives it is it is acceptable him to him And it is well pleasing to him at the end of verse 17 When we give beloved it is as if we are giving directly to God We give to the church we give to an individual we give to an organization It is as if we are giving directly to God And it is God who knows our hearts in that which we give. 
So we see the effect of the gift is massive from a human and from a divine perspective. Well, our fourth point is the source of the gift in verses 19 and 20. And verse 19 says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The Philippians have just given such a great gift in such an important time of need at the beginning of Paul's gospel, at a time of great leanness in Paul's life. So he reminds them about the source of the gift. Not only are they, was Paul lean, but the Philippians, as we saw, also have been very lean and even unable to give. And so Paul says, do not fear, beloved church. God will supply all of your needs. He is the one who is going to give to you. That is, we saw, pressed down, shaken, and overflowing. That is the picture of a, a cup full of wheat that is mashed down. If you just poured in the kernels, there would be an amount that would fill the cup. But if you shook those kernels down and if you pressed them down, it's going to hold a significantly greater quantity, 10 to 15% more, and then overflowing. This is the supply that God will give back. He will supply all of your needs. And notice how he personalizes it. It is my God. It is my God, beloved. This is how we must be. When we speak of God, he is our God. It is my God who will satisfy all your needs. It is my God who will give you life eternal. It is my God who is gracious and compassionate. These are the, the personal proclamations that must saturate our lives. And he supplies not just some of their needs, but all of them. Everything that they could ever require. When we went through Hebrews, Scripture told us that he would never leave us nor forsake us. Financial context, as is our text here, God will provide all of our needs. What a glorious understanding and provision. And according to the riches of God, how big is this? I, if I supplied all of your needs according to my riches, you might be going, well, Thank you, but we're talking about according to the riches of God. We're talking about the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, to whom belongs all of the gold and all of the silver. He will supply all of your needs. And he does so in respect to what at the end of verse 19 in, in the glory, his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. These are not just earthly blessings. They are those, but they are the heavenly blessings of Jesus Christ. They are the glories of eternity. This isn't just God's earthly treasure, but it is all of those that he has in heaven too. These are the riches in Christ Jesus. This is the glory of the gospel. This is him pouring out his benevolence upon us in the truth of the gospel and others through us. Then in verse 20, Paul bursts into praise for this source of the gift where he says, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He is just delighted to understand this gift and all that has gone on. And this is almost a pre-benediction, this doxology of glory to God and honor to God. And this is his response to the gift. And beloved, this has to be our response also. 
as we are able to give, as we understand the many blessings that God gives to us, our lives ought to be this doxology of praise. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's all about His glory. The chief end of man is to bring glory to God. This is why we live. This is all that we know. This is our primary purpose. It is all of God, all for his glory, eternally and truly. Amen. At the end. Paul's closing regards in verses 21 to 23 come to our fifth point, which I titled Closing Regards. And he says there, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Every person in the church deserves to hear the greeting and love of Christ. They need to understand Christ's love for them. This is not something that we can take for granted. This is something we must continue to pass along one to another through difficult times in our lives. You know, there are times where things are, are, are tough slugging, dealing with physical, spiritual, emotional, relational problems in our lives. And somebody comes along and reminds us of the love of Jesus Christ. That's an overwhelming gift. That's a gift that when it comes, it, it saturates our souls. It's balm for a tired heart. And these are the things that we must continually do to one another. Because these are the gifts and glories that are the greetings in Christ Jesus. This isn't just that standard connotation. But this is a command to greet every person in the church. And not just uh, all persons, but every person. It's not like you just give a a general greetings in the Lord Jesus Christ to all y'all. No. Greetings in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jim. Greetings in the Lord Jesus Christ, Judy. Greetings in the Lord Jesus Christ, Averill. Everyone, each and everyone specifically identified to receive that gift and to be reminded of Christ's love and also Paul's care for them. And then he brings the closing salutations of the brethren who are with him who send their greetings All of the saints greet you, especially of all of Caesar's household. We could go on and on about that. Of all the people who were in Caesar's work, his, those who were indentured servants for him, who had come to know Christ through Paul's ministry. These all send greetings to the Philippians. Why? Because the message and the power of the gift of the Philippians, it spread throughout Rome. It spread throughout Caesar's household. Exactly as we also see in Hebrews So he brings this beautiful greeting and then closes the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Philippians has been an amazing book of joy and rejoicing. Philippians has been an amazing book of the unity of the church. And we see that unity so beautifully portrayed in giving. I want to share with you uh, a quote that I read the other day that comes from George Whitfield. And George Whitfield, as he wrote about the Puritans and those who were ministering for Christ, he says, Ministers never write or preach so well as when under the cross, 
the Spirit of Christ, and the glory then rests upon them. It was this, no doubt, that made the Puritans such a burning and shining light when cast out by the Black Bartholomew Act. That was the 1662 Act of Uniformity by which they were thrown out of England and driven from their respective charges to preach in barns and fields, in the highways and hedges. They, in an especial manner, wrote and preached as men having authority. Though dead by their writings, they yet speak. A peculiar unction attends them to this very hour. May that be what is said about us as we consider the legacy that we would live and the reflection of this church and our lives and our participation in it, in the joy that we have and being a part of the ministry and the unity that we would develop. May it be those who would come beyond and say, the unity, the power that they reflect still yet speaks. The unction and the power of the Spirit of God went forth, not just in the strength of the Word, absolutely in that, but in the encouragement, in the love, in the proclamation of the gospel, and the power of the evangelism of the Holy Spirit to the community. Because this is the legacy that we need. And this is the legacy that we see. And this is the legacy that we can carry forward. Pray that God will use us to that end.